Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, and today we're going to be talking about music censorship, transgression. You know, there's been some thoughts that I've been having recently. Some people who follow FIRE very closely might have seen the new video series that we have out with Spin Magazine called Free Speech and Other Dirty Words, where we interview popular musical artists uh, about their careers and about their run-ins with censorship. And when we were collaborating with Spin on this program and were asked to kind of come up with a list of artists that we'd want to interview, I asked the staff, we got the list back, we put it into a spreadsheet. And one thing stood out to me. They happened to be artists who were most popular two or more decades ago. Uh, now, fire staff is fairly young, right? But I did give them the advice or sort of the requirement that we need to have known that they are interested in these topics before, um, that they have said something about it before. And so it, the question came into my mind, like, why did we get all of these older artists being recommended? I asked myself, well, is it because music censorship isn't really a thing anymore? It isn't a thing that artists feel like they need to talk about it anymore. Or is it because free speech, artistic expression, these are concepts that have become polarized in our ever polarizing times? Or is it something different? Is it that maybe musical artists aren't singing like a virgin on the radio anymore, like Madonna did, or you know, saying we're not going to take it anymore. If you can see for my viewers out there, you can see I've got this T-shirt on that says "Censorship." We're not going to take it, which is an homage, of course, to Dee Snider's 1980s song. Um, maybe musical transgression isn't a thing anymore. Maybe we're more talking about self-empowerment, like Katy Perry's "Firework." I don't know. Um, but I do know two people who might have some thoughts on this, and I thought I would invite them on the podcast to kind of talk about the current era of music, uh, transgression is sex, drugs, and rock and roll still a thing, or is that something that's going to get you canceled now, uh, to talk about, uh, how radio stations, for example, are banning certain songs, um, from being played on their own volition, <laughs> not being told by people on the outside to do it, including uh, one famous Christmas song. So one of our guests today is Bob Guccione Jr. He is uh, the founder of the music publication Spin, and I actually met Bob down in Austin at South by Southwest, and he uh, regaled this little salon that we were having with Killer Mike, the rapper, uh, and other p music professionals uh, with his stories from the 1980s fighting uh, the Parents Music Resource Center uh, on set in some cases with Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. So I, I thought he was the perfect guy to come on the show. Bob, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I'm going to just quickly answer your questions before we lose your question. Can I get in Nick introduced first? Oh, please. Yeah, no, no. Absolutely. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> and, <Why all> right. <laughs> and I needed to get Nick Gillespie, who I'm sure is Sorry, familiar. Nick. 
Yeah, it's okay, Nick. We apologize. Bob's just ready to get into I, uh, it. I, too, am ready to roll. So. <laughs> but Nick is going to be familiar to many of our listeners. He's editor-at-large at Region Magazine. And in my personal opinion, one of the most astute observers of pop culture, Nick, I was listening to your Reason interviews when I was in college and just kind of the, you do what Virginia Postrel used to talk about. It's like you used to, you were like a DJ, you mix in all these different areas from culture and philosophy and politics and, and manage to kind of come up with something new and insightful in a way that many other kind of leading thinkers out there don't. And I heard you on Eli Lake's podcast last year in which you did a deep dive with him into the history of punk music. And I was like, this is the guy, if I want to talk about music censorship, transgression, there's a lot of intersections with punk rock there. I need to get Nick Gillespie on the show. So Nick, I'm happy to have you on the show. Welcome. Uh, thank you. It's, it's a real pleasure and an honor. And it's a fantastic, uh, you know, honor as well to be uh, bigfooted by Bob Guccione Jr. I was a huge spin fan. And, you know, between Rolling Stone and spin, and a couple of other magazines. I mean, that's, you know, that's where the action was when I was uh, younger. So it's, it's an incredible honor. Thanks. Thank you. Well, thanks so much. There was a lot of action in those days. That's missing a lot today. Yeah. Um, I wanted to make a comment, perhaps uneducated, but it's a comment anyway, about the transgression in music today. First of all, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sex and drugs are with us. I'm not sure <laughs> rock and roll is with us. Uh, I interviewed Stephen Van Zandt a year and a half ago, and he said, rock and roll's dead. I mean, you can go hear it live, but no one's making it. And um, I thought that was kind of astute, actually, because to a great degree, he's right, not a complete degree, but a great degree. And, and I think the notion of transgressive music, I just don't think we shock anymore. You know, we, we probably all remember the Ghetto Boys. I mean, the Ghetto mm -hmm. Boys was truly shocking, because in context, go back to those years, the early 90s, no one had ever talked about these things. I mean, we had just had American Psycho, the book, um, which was similar in the way it was about mutilating corpses and mutilating women and complete misogyny, complete, you know, violence and terrible. But there was a book and kind of you kind of like, oh, okay, literature's literature. But music, a record that people put on in their home maybe while having dinner, no one had heard this before. And just for that, two live crew was considered incredibly shocking. Now, all utterly protected free speech, by the way. And as you remember from Austin, I, I talked a lot about free speech. Hate speech is um, protected speech, by the way, and should be, and should be. We should flush it out like bad toxins. You know, we should be able to flush it out of our system. So, if you can define it, right? Yeah. If you can, yeah. if you can. Well, I, I think we can all define hate speech. I mean, you know, whatever's hateful is probably hate speech. But the the thing is, people don't realize there's a lot of forms of speech that aren't protected. Free speech is not a, you know, blank check. There are, there are 17 forms, uh, apparently, because some people say it's less. Um, because lying to a law enforcement, federal law enforcement is not protected. Lying in the IRS statement is not protected. There are unprotected forms of speech, but hate speech is not one of them. But we don't have the ability to be shocked as much as we were. And, and I'm not so sure there's much censorship happening in music, per se, except for self-censorship from political correctness, where people are afraid to say anything. Well, I mean, I mean, no one's going to criticize well, a fat person. If I can, if I can uh, pick up on that and, and extend it into the conversation about transgression, I would argue sex, drugs, and rock and roll no longer exist, particularly for younger people. 
They're not having sex the way that people used to. The drugs they take, by and large, are in order, they're mood stabilizers. They are not intoxicants and they are not, you know, you, you don't take drugs to obliterate yourself and either touch, you know, the face of God zooming out there past Pluto, which isn't even a planet anymore. Um, you, you're doing it so you're not overwhelmed with anxiety so you can get, get out of bed in the morning, right? Uh, and then I, I agree completely with, with what Bob was saying and what uh, little Stevie was saying. You know, rock and roll uh, had become this thing. You know, it started in the, in the mid-50s. By the mid-60s, it had evolved into this incredibly robust and varied kind of form of expression, which continued for at least another 20 years. Um, but it's, it's not the main mode of popular music making anymore. It really is rap or hip hop or something like that, which has also gone through this incredible Baroque Renaissance and a profusion of styles. And it, that's the backdrop. So, you know, on a, on a very basic level, I would say sex, drugs, and rock and roll are dead. Some of that I lament the passing of others. It's, you know, it's a sign of progress. I mean, I think, I, and I say this as somebody who loves rock and roll. I grew up with it. It's what speaks to me. Um, and I don't understand hip hop in the same way. I have two sons who are 29 and 21. They're in the way my parents had no fucking idea who the Beatles were. I really don't understand most of the people they're listening to. That's great. I mean, that's just the way things work. When it comes to transgression, I think we're transgressing less, you know, from a top, there's no top down censorship the way there used to be. There aren't six or seven record labels. There aren't three networks. There isn't, you know, a series of law enforcement people who can really stamp things down or choke off cultural commerce and, and the, you know, the dissemination and distribution of product. Everything is better because all of us can consume and produce culture on our own terms in ways that were unimaginable 20 years ago, much less 50 years ago. But to get to Bob's point, this is where, you know, so it's hard to transgress when Sam Smith at the Grammys came out as, you know, uh, in the uh, 70s, we used to talk about, you know, fat Elvis and skinny Elvis. Now we can talk about fat Satan and skinny Satan. <laughs> you know, the skinny satanic rockers of the 70s are gone and we have a chubby guy doing a kind of satiric version of Satanism. It can be fun or what, but it's certainly not transgressive because, you know, everything is permissible. We live in Aleister Crowley's magical universe. Uh, and that's a real triumph, I think, for liberty and individual freedom and expression. But now it raises this problem that Bob was getting at, which is about self-censorship. And that is that is really hard to combat, um, even if it is in some profound way an artifact of, you know, of a massive increase in our abilities to express ourselves. So well, it's if, Talibanic. It's, if I may, Nico's right. It's Talibanic. It's yeah. the exact same thing. The public square is, is social media. Uh, you are stoned to death if you say something that is not the ascribed, prescribed, um, you know, ideology of the times. And so uh, most people don't want to do it. I personally could care less. I'll say whatever I want to say, and I, I invite anybody to address it and debate me anytime, anywhere. But um, it's because I grew up like that, uh, in that, in that spirit. But frankly, most people don't want to have those debates. They don't want to be attacked. They don't want to be singled out on social media. They want the opposite. They want to be praised. So we have virtue signaling. We have, as you alluded to, Nico, the uh, so Christmas song, um, Baby, It's Cold Outside, which for 50 years, the lifespan of, well, 
middle-aged lifespan. No one ever, ever once thought that song was about, um, you know, take rate. Somebody invented that, the virtual signal, and now, of course, it's the great core celeb, and it's pulled and it's redone by that idiot John Legend, who was clearly playing to the balcony. So, I mean, this is the kind of, the, the crazy thing for, for liberals like me is that we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot and when we run out of bullets, we ask for more. Hey, hey Bob, can I push back on some of the points you made earlier where no. you said no. <laughs> you invited no. debate, no. so I'm going to give it to you. So I, I grew up, I was in a metal band. Some of our listeners might know this. I, I talked about it before. I was in a metal band uh, in high school called Angel Fire. We had like a little kind of record deal in... Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, I think a town in Arizona that one of my bandmates drove through one time, uh, or maybe might, might be New Mexico. I forget. Um, and he thought, yeah, this is a real metal name. Uh, we were a death metal band, right? Uh, Swedish death metal. So it's a little bit more melodic. You, <laughs> you scream the verses, sing the choruses, but I grew up like idolizing, uh, metal music, uh, Metallica. And then, you know, you get into more niche artists that Many of our listeners won't be familiar with like Children of Bodom or in flames. <laughs> up there, up there, they like burn churches and stuff. Like <laughs> that's what they did. But I grew up li- reading like Motley Crue's The Dirt or the biographies of Led Zeppelin or the memoirs of Aerosmith. And holy shit, the stuff that they did and they admit to doing, I just could not see being done by artists today. You do not hear about that sort of that sort of stuff. And they were often you know, criticized, but they had this sort of devil may care. I don't give a fuck attitude about it. Now you have Beyonce who uses the word spaz a number of times in her songs. And, uh, it's, it's accused of being ableist. Apparently spaz is a, um, word for people. I mean, I don't even know. I didn't know that it had that, those connotations. And I don't think Beyonce did either. So the disability community came after her. Uh, and then she removed the songs from her lyrics. The same exact thing happened with, with Lizzo when they removed, I just can't, I have a hard time believing that uh, like rock and roll artists or transgressive artists would have done that in the past. And you talk about uh, Baby It's no, would not have. They would not have taken that word. No, no. But, but that's still, so the use of the word spaz to these people is shocking. In the same way, for example, uh, Like a Virgin was shocking or Little Nicky, uh, you know, the Prince song was shocking to people. It's just a different Darling. sort of shocking. Yeah. Darling Nicky, excuse me. Um, it's just a different sort of shocking. And so it, it plays against kind of the, the, the mood of the moment, right? And, and we, have a, we have a conversation right now about consent. So then you look at songs like Blurred Lines by Robin Thicke, which got banned at like over 20 universities in the UK, which Robin Thicke likes to say it's not about consent. Um, That's about you, plagiarism, right? <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, which is also the, like the ultimate rock and roll tradition. I mean, there are like three songs that get endlessly repurposed, so. Yeah, and then, and then you know, baby, it's cold outside. I'm looking at the lyrics here. You know, it says, my mother will start to worry, beautiful, what's your hurry? My father will be pacing the floor, listen to the, you know, I, I could see how if you're looking to be offended, you can find offense in that song. And you could say, this is a song about consent or date rape. This reminds me of the great Christopher Hitchens anecdote about the lexicographer Samuel Johnson. Uh, Samuel Johnson creates the first dictionary of course, and he's waited upon by the British uh, women in the aristocracy. They come to him and they say, we must commend you on writing this dictionary. And we must also commend you on not using any vulgar language 
in the dictionary. Samuel Johnson says, I commend you for knowing where to look. <laughs> I feel like in a certain sense, that's what we're doing is we're trying to bend over backwards to be offended because there's something in the culture right now that gives you a certain status if you could find offense. And so that's why you go combing, go combing through Beyonce or Lizzo's lyric. That's why you go and look at a song that nobody found offensive for 50 years and say, now we can't play this on the radio. I mean, it's just a different short sort of shocking though, isn't it, Bob? Uh, well, it, no, I don't, I don't think it's genuine. I think you go back to a uh, darling Nikki. And I never found it offensive, clearly. Most people didn't. But masturbation wasn't talked about in popular music at that point. I, I think Madonna also talked a little about it at some point. Like a virgin was uh, touching on a very sensitive spot for Catholics and Christians. America is a very Christian country, and Madonna's Catholic, and she knew that. She did it deliberately. And, and I, I applaud that. I like provocativeness. I think it stimulates the culture. Um, and, you know, there was a great line on Saturday Night Live once when they said, you know, two live crews being sued for prost prosecuted for obscenity. Well, why are we always having to defend two live crew? Why can't we defend Jimi Hendrix? <laughs> you know, because it is true. You, you get the, the most, you know, the roughest and the rawest and the toughest stuff is what you have to defend. Otherwise, nothing is meaningful. You know, um, so no, I, I don't think we can justify this, this virtual signaling we're seeing, what I call Talibanic. It is literally like the Taliban. They are laying down um, a prescribed way of thinking. I say, ironically, this very, very far, far left, which I have no association with whatsoever. I am a liberal. I will die a liberal. Perhaps after this podcast, when somebody comes and shoots me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Or does what the Taliban does, which is behead people. Taliban so, probably yeah. like me more. <laughs> um, but the uh, element of the far left being the most destructive to free speech is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. You know, conservatives just don't like things that sort of piss on them. <laughs> That's understandable. None of us like things that piss on us. But they don't really, really go out of their way to try and stop you. You know? But the left will cancel you, and that is, and there, in fact, there was a point I made um, in that little talk in South by Southwest, was that for all of his vitriol and his higgery, Donald Trump, in four years as a president and two years afterwards, hasn't been able to succeed in suppressing one story about him, not one. He hasn't had one tweet taken down. In all of that time. Well, he had his account taken yeah. down. Well, his own account was taken down. But, I mean, he has not succeeded in taking anybody else's down. Mm -hmm. No, he succeeded in getting anything else suppressed in five to six years of ardent trying, and he was president of the United States before that. Well, well, Bob, so let's, I will say, everything, you know, let's let Nick in here. To, yeah, to uh, touch on this question of transgression, it's kind of fascinating. And when the spaz, you know, spazgate uh, came out, and you had in rapid succession two of the most successful you know recording artists ever but of the current moment uh pulling back from that it, it reminded me that a band that i've always loved uh devo in 1977 their first single was called mongoloid and it is about a, a down syndrome a retarded person who masks himself as he goes through a, an everyday life and to their credit you know devo right now i don't know they're like in their 80s practically they still perform that live um, and that was very much part of a kind of punk or transgressive ethos that was everywhere in a lot of different popular culture. 
Um, and, you know, at the same time that was happening, there's a famous sketch with uh, Richard Pryor and um, uh, Chevy Chase on Saturday Night Live where the, it's, it's a job uh, or it's a job interview where they're doing free association. And it is unbelievable to think I'm one of the most popular shows on NBC, the words that were being spoken there that can never, you know, that will never be spoken on, on cable. Or even on a podcast like this, we would shy away from using some of the terms they use there. There hasn't been an abortion on TV since Maud got one in the early 70s. You know, the need for transgression in that old form seems to have abated. And I, I think actually, you know, Madonna in a, in a profound way in the, uh, in the mid to, and especially by the late 80s and with something like her sex book, uh, which is hardcore pornography and, and kind of fantasizing about violence, about bondage, about all sorts of stuff, which came in, I think, in 92, we've lanced that boil. We don't need that kind of transgression in our popular culture anymore. And, and I think we've, in a very positive way, have pushed through to just a general plateau of more freedom of expression. And to Bob's point, um, you know, it's harder for official sources to shut things down. They still try to. I'm very worried by conservatives in Florida and elsewhere who are trying to govern, you know, what is considered an acceptable book, you know, for local schools to kind of teach or not teach or have. Well, and library. public libraries. They're, we're dealing uh, with yeah. the story. I mean, there's, there's a lot to worry about. It's also true that the, the left, the identity politics or the identitarian left um, is really going hammer and tong to kind of just... Uh, you know, a quarantine, certain topics, certain types of phrasing, certain types of thinking out of public discussion. And that's all messed up. But we need to think about why do we, you know, why is popular culture less transgressive than it used to be? And I think, you know, this is a place where we can, well, it's partly that some, some people are scared. Lizzo and Beyonce are scared. Um, and on some level, from a capitalist point of view, you can say, okay, well, you know what, like, you know, it's a, it's a, it might be a smart move uh, rather than going through boycotts and possibly being pulled off of Spotify or something like that. Can I just, can I but just another pause? level, I just yeah. want to say we should take the win because the real win is that more people everywhere can say whatever the fuck they want at any time that they want. And it's not, a, we don't have to, we don't have to change the structural arrangement of society. What we now have to do, and maybe this is harder, we have to, you know, we have to encourage people to have a backbone and to say what they mean and to be, you know, and to defend their points of view rather than backing down at the at the slightest hint. I totally agree. Sorry, Nico, I know you want to jump in. I must say, I had to go on the record. I totally agree with you, Nick. By the way, um, yes, conservatives are a problem. I wasn't nullifying that completely. I was just saying they weren't as much, ironically, as a problem or as successful yeah. as. Uh, the left are being in suppressing speech. You say we can say whatever we want. We cannot say retarded. Go say that in public. I'll say it. I recently yeah. said I thought somebody was retarded. Somebody jumped in. We don't use that word. I said, why not? It's a perfectly valid word. It happened to be the correct word. This person is slowed. They Again, are you know, part of it is, you know, I, I agree with you. The literally the vice principal of the Catholic high school that I went to in the late 70s and early 80s, when he would pull you into the office for discipline, the first thing he would say in a thick Jersey City accent was, what are you, retarded? Which, what you know, created a whole secret language for people there. But, you know, things By the way, I don't see you. And it's not like, you know, to me, it's, it's much more important that it is virtually impossible possible to be prosecuted, much less actually convicted of obscenity. 
now. Yes, and that is have, And that, that, and is that the record labels don't matter. They don't control what music is made and what and what music is heard. No, in that um, case, but yeah. but there are still real issues. Yeah, I, I I'd like to make a few points in response to all of you. You know, just on the book banning stuff. That you know, Fire's been a part of Band Books Week for as long as I've been at Fire, and. Uh, you know, it was for a while sort of an anachronism, right? It's and they, they even changed it from banned books to banned and challenged because like no one was banning books anymore. This is something you did years ago. And that's why, why when I'm coming to this music conversation, I'm like, it could all come back, right? Just in the same way book banning has come back. And there's, there's this case in Lano County, Texas going on right now where a federal judge or they tried to remove a bunch of books from the library uh, for viewpoint based reasons, narrowly political reasons. And the judge said, no, you can't do it for those reasons. Uh, and so they were forced to put the, bat bo the books back in. But then they considered a motion in the city council to just get rid of the libraries altogether. They're like, if we have to put these books back in, we're going to get rid of the libraries. Like yeah, they which cut off is <laughs> deeply, uh, you know, analogous to the massive resistance movement against integration of public schools after Brown versus Board of Education. There were ch counties in Virginia that when they were told, okay, you're going to have to desegregate the schools, you got to integrate the schools. They're like, okay, we're just not offering public high school anymore. I mean, that's what I thought of when I heard that move. It's so fucking insane. It's cutting um, off your nose yeah. to spite your yeah. face. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, it's also, uh, what's the word I'm going to look for? Not minimal, but well, minimal. It's not a lot of that happening. And we have always had in my entire lifetime, I've been around, I was born in 1955. So in the nearly 70 years I've been here, books being banned, books being burned, you know, libraries being told they can't have books. That's not a new story. But I'm going to tell you something that I think is worse than that, because you, you can ban books from Library X and you can go to Library Y and get the book, or you can buy it on Amazon. I mean, it's not perfect world. We don't live in a perfect world. But I'll tell you what's worse, rewriting books. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, That's a whole podcast. It is more insanely censoring and, and defaming to not only the artist, that individual artist, but all of literature, all of history. The rewriting. I think the, the uh, really, and this is directly on point with Lizzo and uh, Beyonce and uh, Taylor Swift as well, who has done this. In an age of electronic media, which again is extremely liberating and convenient and whatnot, you know, places like Amazon, and they do this all the time, you don't own the book or the music, you own a license to listen to it through them. And they change and revise things all the time. And like Lizzo and Beyonce were able to effectively recall everything and then put out the boldlerized version without comment. And I think for me, I don't I don't get too worried up uh, you know I don't get too worried about artists changing their mind or, or you know copping out and stuff like that but the fact that we are now in a world and this is very much a Fahrenheit 451 kind of world where censorship happens almost retrospectively uh, you know and without anybody really being hip to it um, and in fact uh, you know at reason we ran a great essay by Cat Rosenfield not too long ago uh, you know that it, talking about this very topic um, and in that, she tells the story of how Fahrenheit 451, you know, the great Ray Bradbury book about, you know, the, the evils of banning books and whatnot. And um, it turned out like the, the version of that book that most high school students read between the mid 60s to the end of the 70s was actually bolderized. Like the, the publisher, without telling him, 
changed some of the words to make it more palatable to a high school audience. And he only found out about it in the late 70s and flipped his wig and forced his publisher to put out the original text. This is the world we're living in where, I mean, I think it's great in a, in a digital world. You can iterate endlessly and slightly improve things. But if we don't have a record of tracking what was, um, we very quickly get lost in a kind of, I don't know, uh, you know, epistemological, uh, you know, closure that yeah. is, is deeply, deeply disturbing. I mean, I, I was a history major in college and I have a deep respect for history. And when all those publishers started going in and uh, changing Roald Dahl's book or the Goosebumps books or Agatha Christie's books. You know, we're looking, yeah, I mean, I got stopped buying physical books after my first move in which I had to pack up 20 Same boxes thing with full records. of records. I, I had 5,000 records at one point. I have none now. Yeah. I mean, anyone who's they're very, who's, they're hard to move. Anyone who's had to pack up books knows you can't fill the box all the way. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to pick up the box of books. So I started getting ebooks. But apparently now Amazon can go in and just change the text to that book. And, you know, as someone who cares about history, I want to know how people wrote in the past. You know, there's a famous quote that says the, um, the past is a foreign country. They do things different there. Right. Like, I want to know how it was. And, and you know, having we, we, said that, do we agree? You know, you mentioned Agatha Christie, uh, you know, the original version of the novel Ten Little Indians was called Ten Little Niggers. Um, it was never marketed under that title in America and it was changed in England. But I think we can also understand OK, you know what? Like, that's a bad title and a distracting yeah, title, no, or an offensive title. But then we don't want to live in a world where we've never known, you know, where we've always been at war with Eurasia or East Asia or whatever. And we don't know. This the, is the, the Ministry version, of Truth, right? <laughs> the version history. I mean, this is what I love about Wikipedia, uh, even Google Docs. And, you know, there are these tools in place in this world where you have version, you know, his, version histories. And that's what we need, because that's what history is. That is what public discourse is. We're always changing and iterating and whatnot. But we need to know what we were, where we were to know, understand where we are now and where we might end up in the future. That's such an interesting point. I totally agree with you, 100%. Um, but very interestingly put, I, I use the phrase, we, def we defile uh, history by rewriting books. Um, and that, that interesting, let's deal with that little um, contextual issue. Agatha Christie, I'm one of the few people, you're, you're one of the only people I've ever heard who correctly knew the original title. I actually had the original title. In England in 1960, when I was growing up, um, I read Agatha Christie, the late 60s. I was a boy, not yet a teenager. And I read Voracious, and I read all of Agatha Christie and thousands of other books. Um, and I had that version. And then later on, it was called Tender Indians. I go, well, no, that can't be the same book. Then I realized, oh, yes, it is. And, they just <laughs> and then now it's not even called Tender Indians. I forget what it's called, but um, yeah. But I, I think yes, there's some words that really just carry such horrific, toxic uh, portent that you have to say, you know what, we we've got to go past this. I mean, if we go back to the age of, we 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 went past slavery, thank God. But if you go back to the Romans and the Greeks, slavery was as commonplace as eating bread. So we we have to get past. We have to evolve. We have to be more. Um, you know, compassionate and, 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 and changing the title of that I have pretty book, I think was a good thing. Tendal Indians, they're changing that again because right. Indians I think that's getting a little bit silly, but okay, you know, whatever. I mean, let people work that out between them. But when we go in and we change Raul Dahl's language, so that when he says someone is fat, they now call it enormous. It's just defiling literature, defiling our own 
legacy, our own history, which is imperfect. That's what people forget. We're imperfect. Our history is imperfect. But let's at least have a chronicle of that. So I like your version of keeping, a, keeping track of all the versions. But I think more importantly or more fundamentally, we have to have a spine as society. You know, my argument against political correctness, my problem with it, my great beef with the whole notion of political correctness, is criticism is one of the most valid parts of the human experience. I only ever really learn from criticism. I don't think I ever learned from praise, anything, except those going on the right direction, maybe. But criticism, I always took to heart. I dismissed some of it as being not necessarily what I thought and agreed with, and I said to some, oh, I don't know, I agree with it, but that's kind of accurate. And I learned and grew. So that's a, as an individual, but as a society, completely, we, we grow from the ability to criticize. Um, Bill Maher is a good buddy of mine. He, 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 of course, rails against this often. And one of the things he said, you know, we're really upset about talking about people being fat, but maybe we should talk about people being fat. Because half this country is obese. And that's a health condition. And that precipitates early death. You know, for the first time in uh, the history of the country, the uh, life expectancy has gone down slightly. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should talk about it. You know, maybe everybody shouldn't be just so, oh, my God, you said fat. Can I, can I, can so, I the, uh, so the controversy, uh, think, speaking of Lizzo, instead of worrying about wet ass pussy, we should have been focused, you know, on her cholesterol levels. I think it would have right. helped her. I think it would help her. <laughs> talking like a dress but Nico, place if, to I, if I could just turn the, uh, the question back on you, Nico, because you mentioned, you know, kind of death metal and particularly Swedish death metal. But I mean, do you think like are bands like Metallica? Uh, do they no longer have the transgressive urge or impulse or, do, you know, has that genre, has it, does it, has it, has it, you know, kind of fought against everything it needs to fought and now is doing, you know, love ballads or going acoustic or what? I mean, yeah, well, I mean, I, I'll say this. I'm like many other people who tend to gravitate to the music they listen to when they were between the ages of 15 and 23. Right. So I don't really keep up with Swedish death metal in the way I used to. I still listen to it all the time, but I listen to the albums from the mid 2000s, right? And when I was growing up into this music, I, I felt kind of a part of that transgressive culture. This was at a time when kind of old hair metal, metal with guitar solos were on their way out and new metal was coming in. And I remember I used to wear baggy pants, you know, with my pants below my boxers, I oh, get pulled to the principles. You were part so, of the declad. That's what ruined everything, right? You probably wore a baseball cap backwards. Uh, no, I didn't. I had a chain though. I did have a chain, but I was also, you know, I, there were some bands I liked. I liked Slipknot, but I wasn't a big corn fan. Um, it was, so I felt like there was some transgression happening at the time. And actually we didn't like those bands that you're referencing, Nick, although we kind of adopted the style, right? We didn't have long hair, but we did wear the baggy pants and the big black t-shirts. Uh, we called them sellouts because they weren't doing the guitar solos anymore. You don't hear the word sellout anymore. Um, it was like uncool to be popular, uh, back. And, and this was a time when mall culture was just on its way out. You used to be able to identify with the people who shopped at the same stores with you as, as whether it's Vans or Hot Topic or Spencer's or Claire's, you know, I, and, you know, so I, it's, it's hard for me to say, but I remember it being cool to transgress. I remember people, you know, when you're 12, 13, 14 years old, reading the dirt, you know, you think all that is really cool. I just don't know that that's, I, I think our society is a little bit more empathetic than it. And, and there, there are good things that come with that. And there are bad things that come with that. Um, well, we're imperfect. Uh, so yeah. We're imperfect. It's, we're always going to be. 
It's fascinating when you mention a hot topic or, you know, Vans. Uh, or, or Spencer's, you yeah. know, uh, Spencer's, because that's been, I mean, I remember going to Spencer's, I guess, in the 80s, maybe in the 70s. And it's, I'm sure it's the first place where 99% of people alive in America saw a vibrator um, <laughs> and probably a black light poster. But, you know, these things are kind of stuck in time. But, you know, hot topic isn't such a big deal anymore. But Walmart, uh, which has a fascinating history with popular music, um, you know, is now the biggest purveyor of goth stuff. I, I lived for a long time, full and part time in rural Ohio, and I spent a lot of time in Walmart and Walmart has more goth stuff in it than Hot Topic uh, because it's gone from being kind of a transgressive subculture to just being a background culture for for many parts of, you know, middle America. I mean, it explains why a group like uh, Slipknot, you know, is I mean, it makes sense. They're from Iowa. Like in a weird way, you don't act like that if you come from New York City, particularly Manhattan, right? Well, I do. I mean, it's cliche to say at this point, right? The the coasts and those in media um, tend to have an outsized influence on society. But I, Nick, you were mentioning earlier that artists would self censor because they, you know, of market forces and market pressures. But at the same time, I actually think the market is behind a lot of this transgressive art or these transgressive podcasts. You know, when Dave Chappelle famously when uh, tried to get himself canceled with his closer on Netflix, and Netflix fortunately didn't take it off of its streaming platform as many asked to, you could just go to Rotten Tomatoes and see that it had a 99% approval rating from from uh, the general public, and right. you know, it was a it was a splat. With the but critics, it's, it's always and, it, and the same me. thing happened to Rogan too, right? You know, he yep. became more popular than ever after uh, folks tried to cancel it, him from Spotify. And then Bill Maher, you mentioned, Bob, I've I've put folks from Fire on on number of different uh, podcasts, TV shows. You know, we've been quoted all over the place. Nobody has as much influence in driving the conversation yeah. as Bill Maher does. But you don't hear about Bill Maher so much. Yeah. He has a huge audience of people. And it's he's just hard gone to recognize. From, you know, he went from Comedy Central, Basic Cable to ABC to HBO. Um, you know, and it's fascinating because he's he I you know, I think the South Park guys are like this. There there are uh, Dave Chappelle, certainly where they actually become more and more. Uh, I don't want to say transgressive, but like they have more and more serious integrity of who they are and they gain a bigger and bigger audience without having to curtail it. Having said that, you know, when you're doing transgression and, and art, you know, we love transgressive art, at least throughout the 20th century and into the 21st in many ways, it's always a, you're, you're on a razor's edge because, you know, I mentioned Madonna's sex book. Madonna had a string of incredible records and really was such a profound agent of change in, in American culture. I mean, like we don't talk about the virgin whore complex anymore, which we had for 2000 years before Madonna she wiped that out, but she did go too far with the sex book. It was too much for her fans. And you read it now and it's still like, wow, this is pretty stunning stuff. And it's, you know, 40 years old. Um, so, you know, you, you have to, you're always playing a little bit of a game. Uh, you know, Nico, uh, in doing a little prep for this, I, I found out, which I didn't know today, uh, before this, but Van Morrison, who is now a transgressive artist because he's recording songs with Eric Clapton that are anti-vaccine mandate and being attacked by Rolling Stone. But Brown Eyed Girl, like probably his single best known song, was originally called Brown Skinned Girl. And he, he flipped it into Brown Eyed Girl because he thought it would be too much for his audience, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s 
to deal with a love song that is, you know, openly about a transracial uh, love thing. So, you know, people are always, artists are always trying to be a little bit ahead, but not too far ahead. I'm trying to sing the, the, the lyrics in my head and I'm like, which one's better, brown skinned or brown eyed? You know, which one, know. you know, which one is musically I, I mean, I have, has a better as, rhythm. As somebody who was part Irish American and spent too many college parties, at the end of the night, everybody who wanted to be Irish would put on Van Morrison songs and get blind drunk. And I, I, I no longer like Van Morrison. I like him more because he's anti-vaccine. I'm pro-vaccine, but the fact that he is willing to fucking say what he believes is kind of a problem. I believe, I think it's tremendous. Talk about censorship. I interviewed Robert uh, Kennedy Jr. Uh, about two years ago, right in the middle of the pandemic. And he came out with a book about Fauci. What drew my attention was I had had run-ins with Fauci in the uh, 80s and 90s when Spin had a, its AIDS column. And we found that Fauci was uh, lying to the public. We found that he was being supported by the pharmaceutical companies. And we undid the whole um, mythology around AZT. And we proved that it was killing people far from an AIDS. And, and we, we probably, I say we, we changed the way the world's media covered AIDS because we were leading um, with, with such fantastic reporting showing that people really didn't know. So when that thing came up with Kennedy had this book on Fauci, I reached out to some people and they, they set me up and I interviewed him. And I interviewed him uh, over two days uh, and I fact-checked him over two weeks, but solidly. I actually didn't do much else with anything else, but just fact-check, fact-check with scientific studies and so on. I took out at least a third of what he said and I challenged him on at least another third, but the other third he was dead on. And we ran this piece and of course we were savage by it. You know, people were so upset. You're giving room and space and credence to an anti-vaxxer said, wait a minute, no, no, he's not wrong. Everything that we printed was right. That's all factual. You don't agree with it. It's fine. I don't particularly agree with it. I'm, I'm pro-vaxxer. Because I, I think on balance, we stay healthier with vaccines. We would always still have polio and smallpox and God knows what else. But it's not untrue to say that some people get seriously ill from vaccines and die. That wasn't untrue. And to, to, to remove it from the arena of truth is worse than to let it be heard and let people make up their mind. And let's, let's say, at the end of the day, we have to have faith. You, Nico, on your podcast, have to have faith that people are smart enough to hear different opinions, like mine and Nick's. Um, and, and whoever else you guests are next week and the week before, and that they won't make up their own mind. They'll be intelligent enough to say, well, I accept some of what Bob said, and some that I don't accept what he says. But it's all part of a debate, discussion. When you suppress that debate, that's when we go backwards. And I always say it's far essentially because it's, it's very simple, it's simple and very empirical. Look at apartheid in South Africa. Look at um, the Soviet bloc where you weren't allowed to speak. Look at the places today where you're not allowed to speak. And um, what, what kind of society do you have? How, how awful and how, frankly, retarded is that society? Hey, can I ask about platforming? You mentioned, you know, um, you know, you wrote this article and people were, were mad at you for writing this article. We had an experience yesterday. Uh, we did a webinar for a FIRES faculty network where we invited uh, the law professor at the University of Pennsylvania, Amy Wax. She is uh, being brought up on charges, uh, could lose her tenure because of things she's alleged to have said about students, the, some incendiary commentary she's made about immigrants. And, you know, she's, um, she's pretty right wing and pretty unapologetic. And... Penn is trying to punish her up to and including termination. Uh, and it's probably the biggest academic freedom case going on in the country right now. So we, we asked Amy Wax, come on our webinar um, and defend yourself. 
right? We'll give you we'll we'll give you the opportunity to defend yourself, but then we're going to turn it over to our faculty network to ask you incisive questions about your case. And she, to her credit, agreed to it. Uh, and and um, I haven't had a chance to watch it. I had a meeting while it was happening, but we're going to post it on Fire's YouTube channel here soon. But we were being asked by reporters, people on Twitter, why would you platform this person, right? Why would you platform this person? We, and, and it's just, it's such a departure from the way, at least I feel, things used to be where it, where you know, you want to hear from these people and then you want to have an opportunity to ask them incisive questions. You want to hear them make their best case. Um, you want to hear everybody say. But, but, now, but now there's like, there's this, there's this whole line of, of argumentation that's happening right now. It's like just listening to these people or giving them the, or quoting them in your article is giving them a platform and there's something immoral and unethical about it. It's an this. attempt to censor. It's an attempt to intimidate you to censor. I, I, I you know, I want to go back to uh, 1980s with PRMRC and when music censorship really was a flare. Uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, I was the most um, proficient uh, guest on shows and debates and lecture. I lectured and I debated around the, the whole country. I must have done 100, literally 100 debates in universities. And um, I was on perhaps a thousand different interviews between radio and television. But one of the places I went regularly was the 700 Club. Mm-hmm. And I went on Christian radio, perhaps as much as I went on rock radio. I accepted every invitation on Christian radio. At one point, my father said to me, you're you crazy. You're giving these people credibility. I said, the father was the publisher of Penthouse, right? For yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I said, credibility, they have God. They don't need credibility. <laughs> that they got in space. What they don't have is an alternative view. I'm the first time they ever heard it. This may not be as bad as they, they think and as they're told. And it was Bible thumpers selling Bibles that were telling them this stuff was bad because it because it, it sold Bibles to frighten them that their kids were going to go to hell listening to rock and roll. So I debated a lot of these guys, and I became friendly with some of them. And uh, the 700 Club called me the house liberal, you know, because I was the only liberal to show up. But I thought it was incredibly <laughs> important to go talk to the other side. And I used to say to my side, since we're talking sides here, we have sides, we have liberals and conservatives. I would say to liberals, wait a minute. You, you want free speech, right? You have to have their free speech too. It includes their free speech, the free speech we don't like. We have to defend that as well. So if a Christian says, I'm going to hell, you have to defend his right to say that. You can't close that down. That's, that's hypocritical. I Nick, you do to get think in? that the deplatforming movement uh, is disturbing. And, I, you know, it's not completely unprecedented, but it's different than it used to be. Um, and I think it's worse. When I, when I was in college in the 80s and in grad school, people, you would, you would invite unpopular speakers, but they would mostly be allowed to speak. And then there might be a debate afterwards, either with the person and, and a bunch of other people or, you know, groups talking obviously preferable and i think uh you know nika what you're talking about is a shift to a post-liberal world you know uh, and and by that i mean both you know kind of liberal as of you know uh circa 1970 but also classically liberal the idea you know drawn out of the enlightenment that we need to be in broad conversation with all sorts of people all the time because each of us is limited we have bias we don't know what is true this is the best way to check our math kind of that 
our worldview makes sense or is good or that we can learn from other people. And I, you know, I'm very interested in, in, in seeing that Amy Wax thing because everything I've read about her is that she is a kind of unapologetic white nationalist, you know, scientific racist. Um, so I'd be curious to actually know that because you never really get a chance to see her talk. Um, but there is a real, you know, this I think is the main problem that is driving, uh, 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 you know, bad discourse in America, which is that you don't have to listen to people you disagree with. It's enough to know you disagree with them. There's a version of that on the left, particularly among identity politics people. It's extremely bad. There is a growing and ominous trend among post-liberal conservatives, and these are, you know, oftentimes the nationalist conservatives, uh, but people like Patrick Deneen, uh, and and a couple of people at, you know, both at Notre Dame and at Harvard. I mean, these are like not marginal characters. Yeah, Vermeil um, over at Har Harvard. Yeah, Vermeil and uh, Deneen at, at Notre Dame. And I, you know, as, as a libertarian and as a classical liberal, I want to engage these people and kind of, you know, because I feel like, uh, you know what, in, in an open argument, I think I have a better point of view. I think I have a better framework for knowledge and for societal progress. Um, and I think that's something that is generationally changing. Um, and, you know, part of, we, we started by talking about popular culture. People always speak through, uh, you know, culture, you know, that it, culture isn't, it isn't didactic in the sense that if you watch, you know, if you listen to Darling Nikki, you're going to start masturbating with a magazine and the, the lobby of a hotel, which is the way that Tipper Gore talked about it. it. It was this insane idea. But like you speak through the culture of your moment because it expresses you and, and you can you can talk through things. And, you know, we need to understand culture is a conversation. And it's always better when that conversation is more open and engaging. Um, everybody's going to put their own curbs on it, but we need to have as big and as robust a conversation as I possible. Wanna, yeah, I want to ask about, so you mentioned Tipper Gore and Darling Nikki. And I want to ask Bob about this, because this is one of the more interesting things that I learned from the salon that we had back at South by Southwest, Bob, is um, you said when the PMRC first started kind of going after Darling Nikki and other artists, uh, that there were few voices on the other side willing to push back on them. So if, you were getting if a lot. I may, I just, you know, mm -hmm. thank you, Bob, for what you did back then. And it was people like him and John Denver, of all people, who was not particularly in the sights of the PMRC. And to a degree, somebody like Frank Zappa, who was not really that popular an artist, like these guys put stuff on the line where, you know, most of the people who were being attacked, the big artists and certainly the big record labels were, you know, conspicuous by their absence well, and saying, fuck you, I'm, I'm singing what I'm saying. Well, Rocky Mountain High was a stoner song, right? That was yeah, the allegation against clearly. that one. But um, I, I was so you look back and, and this is often the case with censorship, right? Is you, they went after movies. They went after comic books. You had the comics code. You, they went after music. And we all look back on it as like this was silly that this happened, even with the Skokie case where you had literal Nazis marching in a town of Holocaust, like that's sort of revered today, right? And I know this working at fire is like when you're in the thick of it in a free speech battle, it feels like the world is against you. But over time, people tend to respect that you stood for the principle and cultural norms shift. So it's hard for me, um, Bob, I didn't know because I grew up a metalhead that a vast majority of the country was on the PMRC's 
side and that the few people were willing to stand up to them, at least initially, and that you were taking a lot of those requests because you were the only one that was able to speak on that. And so, but, but like, so can you talk a little bit about that going on Oprah's show? And can you um, also, for our listeners who might not know, what was the PRC, if you can explain that briefly? Yeah. No, no, you tell the story very well. Um, the PMRC was the Parents Music Resource Center. It was a completely bogus organization created by Tipa Gore to brand name her husband, Al Gore, for when he ran for president, which he did a few years later, because Al Gore was never going to get the moderates. He was too far left. He certainly wasn't going to get the conservatives. So what they tried to do, the Gores, was create something which was actually a conservative mo- movement that would make him sound more appealing, because he never once, ever, for all of his left credentials, ever criticized the PMRC, which is very telling. I I called that very early on. But anyway, before that happened, um, what happened was the PMRC called for these Senate hearings and was going to go after records, and they were going to make records banned. And so uh, the news media naturally started calling all the top editors, the Rolling Stone, Musician, Green Magazine, Billboard. They all said, I'm not touching that. No way. I don't, I don't want part of that debate. I'm not debating senators' wives. And they got to me the last call, literally. It was like, well, there's this magazine called Spin. In 1985, we had just started. Very tiny magazine we were. And they said, well, this guy, you know, maybe him. I said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. So I kept saying, I'll do it every time. So finally, I became the thorn in their side, and um, they didn't turn up for debates. So I was supposed to be on Nightline. I was actually sitting in the uh, studio in Nightline, and typically I didn't show up. Um, I debated Susan Baker on Fox News when it first started, Fox News, um, and uh, she didn't come back. for. And even Sean Hannity said, you know, I got to say, I agree with Bob, and he's being very, he's being welcoming of your viewpoint. And he's saying, you know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you can prove any of this, he'll give you two pages free and spin for three months in a row. So everybody sees your case. Which is what I did. He challenged her online and said, just show it to me. Show it to me and I'll, I'll publish it. I don't agree with you, but I'll publish it for free because truth is truth. It never happened. So I debated these people and, and their, you know, satellites like Jimmy Swaggett um, because no one else would. And I grew up in the penthouse home. By the way, it was always my intention to stand up for, for spin and spin subject matter. But because I grew up in, in, in my father's home as the publisher of Penthouse, where he was constantly assailed, and people tried to put him in prison. You know, there's no law that put him in prison, even the obscenity law. The judge said, uh, you know, this is not obscenity. It has um, redeeming value as a magazine. But he f- knew he had to fight back. You get subsumed. And he was, in his way, one of the only people. Um, Larry Flint of Hustler gets a lot of credit, which he doesn't deserve. He just didn't want his magazine banned. And he was definitely on the uh, the coattails of my father, who was literally fighting. And, and my father indemnified every newsstand in America. There were 100,000 wow. newsstands. He said, I indemnify everyone. If you go to court, I will pay for it. For right. And he did have to pay for some suits in some place. They did sue newsstands. They did take the court. But um, so I grew up in that environment knowing you had to stand up when this stuff happened. And one reads history, you realize you've got to stand up to people who are trying to be oppressive in any way, which is why, frankly, I'm sitting here today standing up against the notion of the far, far left and of the wokeness, which I find equally damaging as the BMRC, maybe more so because with digital media, it is, it is fueled, nit- you know, it's nitrously fueled. Um, nitrous oxide is what I'm trying to say yeah. behind that. So, so, yeah, the PMRC, that was uh, an accident that I was the one who was brought in because nobody else would talk about it in the media. 
I want to say Frank Zappic deserves the most credit because A, he wasn't affected, and B, he just jumped in on things, as did Dee Snyder, who was somewhat yeah. affected, and Joe Biafra, who they tried to destroy. But um, these guys stood up, they had the balls and the courage to do so, as did, you know, so many of the rappers who attacked them. There was a racial component against that with, with the rappers, for sure, in the beginning. But, um, you know, when Ozzy Osbourne was attacked for that song, Suicide Solution, some kid was said to have died because of it. I was on a show, I was asked about it, and I said, well, I said, one person, let's just say he actually did kill himself because he listened to that song, which I don't agree with. Let's say he did. Tens of millions of others didn't. <laughs> so let's look at the data here. You've got tens of millions of people exposed to that song who didn't kill themselves. So maybe that song doesn't drive the suicide. I then was the person, I personally was the person who broke that case because I was sitting in my office one day looking at a bunch of stuff and I realized that the date the kid killed himself was before the single came out. Mm -hmm. It had not been released. And mm -hmm. I, I called up Sharon Osborne, who I did not know, but I found her. And I called up and I told her that. And she said, oh, thank you very much. The case was dismissed a few days later. Mm -hmm. And I got a little thank you note from her. Thank you, Bob. If you hadn't seen that, we'd still be fighting this case. So that's the kind of bullshit. So guess what? No one killed themselves because of that song. Not even mm -hmm. one kid. But I mean, we do we do live in hysteria. We always do. We always have. I'm now old enough to have said I've seen it for a few generations. But the important thing is to stand up. You have to stand up against oppression. And you know, of course, my bias being in the media means I deal with words and language and thoughts and opinions. That is what I have done my entire adult life. So naturally, my bias is towards that being the freest possible, with the understanding that there's some forms of speech that are not free. You cannot say you will kill someone. Um, and that's probably a good thing you can't. But I do believe that it's important to identify the enemy wherever they are, even if they're on your side of the yeah. I uh, do want to recommend uh, everybody, you can buy copies for a couple bucks on Amazon or ABE Books. <clears throat> Tipper Gore's 1988 uh, manifesto, Raising PG Kids in an X-Rated World, is the type of thing every time you think you're in a moral panic, or you're witnessing one, go back and read that book, which, among other things, has a chapter on uh, how Dungeons and Dragons are leading, you know, millions of kids into Satanism. And, uh, you know, it's a game they can't win. It is, it presented then to, I think, anybody with a brain as insane. But, you know, we were in a moral panic, so people were taking this stuff seriously. Read it now and then just drop in you know, all of the contemporary buzzwords. One of the things you brought up, Suicide Solution and Ozzy Osbourne, and there was in the 80s, this you know, moral panic over backward masking. Uh, you know, the idea that somehow certain rock bands, and you know, this goes back to the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and whatnot, but you know, it really hit a high note in the 80s, that they were encoding, you know, secret messages if you played the, backward, uh, the, the records backwards and stuff like that, that would command people to worship Satan, to kill themselves, all of this. And, you know, it was taken seriously. I mean, people at the Senate, Al Gore went from being, you know, the husband of the woman behind the PMRC. Uh, in 1992, when he became vice presidential candidate with Bill Clinton, he and Tipper presented as uh, we were lifelong Grateful Dead fans. We love the Grateful Dead. We've always loved rock and roll. And nobody was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Four years ago, you were accusing Cindy Lauper of glamorizing masturbation in the song Shebop, which was one of the filthy 15, the, the, the key list of horrible, horrible songs that uh, the PMRC uh, wanted to draw attention to. Um, 
we're in other types of moral panics now. That because the, the point about moral panics is that there's an idea that some kind of force is taking over some segment of society, typically children, and getting them to do all sorts of things they wouldn't otherwise do. Back then it was, you know, it was rock music, then it was backward masking or, or you know, heavy metal or satanic rock. Now we talk about algorithms uh, and other magical terms that are always presented as scientific because the PMRC in the 80s was able, you know, they could marshal endless, an endless parade of psychologists to say, no, this kid killed themselves because they listened to a fucking Ozzy Osbourne song, or they did this, or they did that, or, you know, the West Memphis Three, a famous uh, group of kids who were, Ill, you know, wrongly imprisoned for years for a crime they didn't commit because they had listened to, you know, certain kinds of dark metal. Um, always, you know, think about when you when it smells like a moral panic it virtually always is and we just need to remember like it always moral panics always present as cutting-edge science psychology or serious thought and they're inevitably revealed to be as idiotic as things like the pmrc and its fixation on dungeons and dragons satanic imagery uh the ability of rock music to you know, dri you know, drive kids insane and live lives their parents don't approve of. There's a, you mentioned backward masking, and uh, my now colleague Bob Corn Revere, who's actually yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's uh, in the office next to me. He was formerly a partner at Davis Wright Tremaine, but he started working here at Fire uh, a week ago. He wrote a book called Mind of the Censor and the Eye of the Beholder, and in there he talks about the case of the King Mink's cover of Little Richard's Louis Louis, which became the subject of a years-long federal investigation. Yep. I believe two and a half years, the federal government, several U.S. attorneys, uh, looked into the corrupting, you know, lyrics of Louis Louie, playing it back, trying to figure out what the yeah. songs, I mean, anyone who listens to the song knows they kind of slur the word, Louie Louie, right? Yeah. Whoa, whoa. And so it's kind of hard to hear what they're saying, but it's, it's a, it's a lovesick sailor's lament is pretty much all it is. And, you know, there was, there were kids singing it on the uh, schoolyard, changing the lyrics themselves. But, you know, in some cases they interviewed the artists, literally read them their rights, um, just to try and find some dirty word here that they never ended ultimately finding it at however uh, many do dollars at the taxpayer's expense. But I want to close here because I think some of our listeners might be listening to this and saying, you know, okay, you're talking about the end of transgression, you know, censored music isn't really happening any anymore or isn't happening at the scale that it used to. And, and they're going to be saying, what, you know, what the hell, rap, rap music, right? Like, you know, we, if you look back on the history of music censorship, rap has been under constant attack. You know, you look at NWA's Fuck the Police, you can look at uh, Two Live Crew, Bob, you mentioned, uh, nasty as they want to be. I mean, rap artists are still being prosecuted. Uh, Nick, uh, Eric Nielsen and Andrea Dennis wrote a great book called Rap on Trial. Eric's actually going to be at Fires Gala next week uh, with Killer Mike, who wrote the intro to that book. And they found approximately 500 cases where violent and aggressive lyrics and rap music were used against defendants in court. Now you have some states that are trying to ref reform the rules of evidence so that these lyrics can't be introduced or there's a higher bar to have them introduced. For example, the state of California passed such such a law. But um, you know, 
rap artists are still under, you know, and, and Bob, you mentioned kind of potential racial component there. And I think yeah. that's probably apt. I mean, yeah. you're not going after Johnny Cash for, you know, shooting a man in Reno, right? Well, <laughs> Just to watch, watch him die. Or, or Tom Jones celebrating, you know, uh, spousal murder in Delilah, which, you know, won like an Ivor Novello award. Yeah. Yeah. No, you so well, so right. Um, look, one thing that we have to say is that some of the rap songs are deliberately provocative and, yeah. and that's their commerciality. And that's fine. And I like that. I love provocative and I like people pushing the edge of the envelope. Um, and I'm shot a man in Reno is kind of like a cowboy song. And so we kind of, we, we were all right with that. But, um, you know, some of the, uh, some of the stuff, uh, really is tough. I love the, uh, the cop killer story though, because there's a great irony yeah. there that most people don't know. I don't know at, it, so tell at me. The it. At the time, <laughs> at, at, uh, at, thank you for setting me up so beautifully. At the, <laughs> at the time that Charlton Heston was railing against Cop Killer and was um, on the board of directors at Warner Communications, which owned the record label Ice T was on, and Body Count was part of that uh, label. At the time that John Heston kicked up that fuss and got Ice T kicked off the label, got the label kicked out, that became Interscope. And got Vibe magazine kicked out the door because they had black people in it. <laughs> they must all be the same. That was their thinking. At that time, John Heston was the spokesperson for the NRA. And they were trying and lobbying desperately to get approval for a bullet that was known as the cop killer and was protested by every law enforcement agency in the country yeah. because it penetrated the Kevlar. So they didn't want this bullet around because it actually killed them. It was literally a cop killer, which he was advocating for while attacking Ice-T for his song. But that's the kind of hypocrisy that you can find if you just scrape under the top soil, almost always. There's uh, uh, just a, uh, a side note. A couple of years ago, I was playing um, early rap music for my kids, you know, stuff from the 80s, really, and even the late 70s. And because uh, I was like, well, you're, you know, this is the music you love. You should listen to its early roots. <laughs> and they were like, Dad, this is awful. <laughs> uh, listening to you know, uh, it's great. Yeah, that Curtis stuff Blow, except no, but it, and it and it would have been like if somebody in 1975 or 1980 had sat me down and you know played me uh, Gene Vincent stuff or whatever. You know, I, I would have been like, what the fuck is this? You know, but they loved Cop Killer by uh, Ice T and and Body Count because it it really. It holds up in an, in an incredibly strong, fascinating way. The other irony, of course, is that Ice T ended up, you know, playing a cop for the past <laughs> twenty five years. Law and Order, uh, but but on Law and Order SVU. But it's also, you know, what's interesting. He's to go back to this question of transgression because, um, you know, he no longer talks about being a pimp. Or he doesn't dress his son as a pimp for Halloween anymore and kind of parade him around. You know, societies have these kinds of life cycles of transgression. Individuals do. Art forms do. And it's kind of interesting to think about that. But I, I agree with Bob and I, I think with you on a profound level, uh, Nico, which is that, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's hugely liberating that individuals now are more in charge of what they can consume and produce. You know, the technologically, the end of all sorts of gatekeeper cultures, both cultural as well as economic and whatnot, you can do more and more. But it does mean that censorship has you know, been devolved to the individual. And among some of the people we would most expect to say no to censorship, and I'm thinking of creative artists like Beyonce and Lizzo and uh, you know, Taylor Swift and others, they have taken it upon themselves to 
you know, kind of collapse the minute that they, you know, they think that they're going to go into some kind of downward, uh, you know, fan spiral. And that's ultimately not, you know, I don't, I don't begrudge them their particular decisions, but on a broader level, we need to really start thinking about, you know, what does it mean to protect not just my right to say what I want, but the people that I disagree with. This was not, this was just taken for granted for, uh, uh, for about 50 years, I would say from, you know, right after World War II through sometime in the, two th in the, in the 21st century, in the aughts. It is now very much under attack or reconsideration, and I think it's up to people like us and certainly groups like FIRE to really make the case that it is a, it's just, it's a better world for everybody when all of us are talking and you know, and we're arguing rather than censoring or, or just ignoring people. We Can I add some with. context? Because we've brought up Taylor Swift a few times and we didn't say exactly what she did. She had uh, a song called Picture to Burn that was on her, I think, first album, 2006. Uh, I know a lot about Taylor Swift. I'm kind of a big fan of Taylor Swift's early music because I grew up with her. She was born in December, 1989. I was born in February, 1990. And so when she, you know, she talks, she uses her age and uh, a lot of her songs and she had an album, I think called 1989. Um, and in, there's a famous lyric in that song, you know, so go and tell all your friends that I'm obsessive and crazy. That's fine. I'll tell mine you're gay, by the way. <laughs> Uh, you know, that was back in the early 2000s when calling people gay or a fag was just something you did in everyday parlance. I mean, it was part of the culture there. And now it's become verboten, right? And so she has rewritten her songs, at least those you can get on streaming versions and the music videos, to remove that. But I have a, I have a kind of a factual question for you two. Uh, if I may, she also re-recorded a lot of those things in order to capture more revenue because her early contract... I mean, this is always fascinating, uh, particularly with music, because music is such a marriage of art and commerce. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes the motives are not really about aesthetics or anything principled. It's about how do you squeeze a little bit more money out of it. And she re-recorded her, you know, her early catalog. And or you know, and I mean, you don't have the rights to the catalog. Yeah, yeah, because she she did she owned the sync rights, I think, but didn't own the right. master rights. So you yeah. know, sync rights for those who don't know are the right to like re-record a song. Yeah, and if you, yeah. I yeah, go ahead. Let me let me make a comment about what you just said about Taylor Swift. Look, I think. Um, I, although hate speech and offensive speech is protected as it should be by the First Amendment, let me be very clear, it should be protected. It's not necessarily speech a, a reasonable human being would use. Um, I wouldn't use that language, although I, I will fight for the right for it to exist. I don't want to use it. I don't want to call somebody a fag. There was a, uh, a case where a rapper at Spin back in the uh, late uh, 80s, early 90s, called our photographer, in fact, he was, he was gay. He was tiny, and this guy was a big guy. I don't know who it is, but it's not fair now. 30, 40 years ago. But the rapper is a big guy, a tough guy. And he called this little guy, like five foot four, and very effective. So I called him up, but I didn't get him. I man. And I said, tell him to come here to spin on 18th Street and call me a fan. We'll see how that goes. Because I'm the same size as your boy. So let's see if he calls me a fan. Well, he didn't. He apologized. He wasn't going to call me because I'm not five foot four. I'm not that big, but I wasn't five <laughs> foot four. And, and, and I, you know, just wasn't going to put up with it. So I, I don't, I'm not for racist, you know, uh, misogynist, homophobic language in any respect. What I want to be clear about that. And I'm not doing that with virtual signals. However, um, why can't we admit somebody's gay? Why can't we use that phrase? Mm. So and so is gay. 
right? They're usually pretty much open about it. We found out from them they were gay. Why, why do we have to walk on eggshells? What kind of the word gay? You know, I, can't yeah. that. I can't use this word. I can't use retarded. I can't use anything that might possibly make somebody feel very aware of who they are ethnically, uh, including Italians and Spanish people, by the way, um, yeah. or, or, or sexually. You know, I, I think it becomes so precious. So why? I ask why are we so precious? Well, I think I words take on... Oh, Nico, well, let me finish. Let me just say, I just want to say, this is the point. Is that of cowardice? It's easy to go along with the flow. It's harder to say, wait a minute, folks, come on, let's not be so precious. Let's have a la let's ha let's have language. Let's not let's not, you know, sacrifice language on the altar of political correctness. Well words change language. Yeah, words change meaning over time, right? You, you, you know, it, it, you used to call an African American Negro, and now that is, you know, seen as offensive. Um, you know. And and you see people in these communities try and try and kind of reclaim these words that was the case with the band the slants which was a which is an asian american rock group who i've had on the podcast before they had a case yeah. go all the way up to supreme court i think they tried to trademark their name the slants they yeah, were turned and down i think they they won their case ultimately didn't nine they? zero yeah nine zero uh, because you know it's uh, the you know the patent and trademark office said you can't this is a slur you can't you know you can't right. trademark this and they were said well you know it's the name of our band right and we're an Asian American rock group and we're trying to reclaim this word that was once used as a pejorative so words changed Stephen Pinker talks uh, a lot about this but I I um I do I do want to yeah I know and I do want to ask kind of one closing question because I know I'm keeping you guys longer. Um, than I had promised, and I appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate you guys staying on. Um, we were we were talking about Ice T and body count, right? And Ice T did an ad for Fire, which very very kind of him. And um, which <laughs> I was doing research for this podcast and looking at Two Live Crew and their album Band in the USA. And it, somewhere in the research, I found this was the first <laughs> album that got the explicit sticker. Which for those who right. are viewing can see, I my shirt is kind of a play on the explicit sticker. But in our ad, Ice T said that his album was the first one stickered, and I'm like, Yeah, it was. Well, well, right. fuck did did we get our ad wrong? And I remember look, trying to fact check that but um i, I don't i mean they yeah i thought i thought i thought ice tea's al album was but someone said band in the usa was um i don't know the two live crew album they said might i don't know um, oh oh i'm sorry you're right i think i thought it was two live crew um as well but let, let me just say one thing about the little sticker mm -hmm. so we fought hard against any form of censorship which included the sticker finally a record executive saying to me one day over a, a meal lunch with him he said, Bob, don't fight it. We sell more records with it. He said, we're <laughs> trying to put it on every record. We're trying to, That's we're getting, funny. we're getting milk toast records and we're saying to the band, couldn't you use a few swear words on one of the songs? Well, that was a compromise, yeah. right? With the PMRC, right? Is that the, 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 once the record industry realized they sold more records. As soon <laughs> as they realized that, they were like putting on everything. Pat Boone would have had one if he was still active in those days. Well, his version of Tutti Frutti is filthy. Like yeah, all well, versions he, of Tutti Frutti. He missed so. an opportunity, put that little mm. sticker on there. And so they were, it was exponential, the higher the sales with the, um, the sticker. So the record industry went like, yeah, thanks. We love this. Mm. Happy to do it. Well, gentlemen, I think we have to leave it there. We've been going for an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, I could go even longer and maybe we might need a part two. Uh, to now, this you're conversation. Just <laughs> <laughs> now you're just bragging. Yeah. I find uh, that offensive. Yeah. Those of us, those of us who don't go for an hour and fifteen. My 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 one disappointment, and I might have to get uh, you guys back on to do this, is I'd love to talk about you know you know uh, 
punk rock, which is not my genre. I have a colleague, Matt Harwood, who I know Nick knows, uh, who's way into punk rock. We could talk about Joe Strummer. We could talk about, uh, what's his name? You mentioned him, uh, Bob Jello Biaf- Biafra. Biafra of the Dead Kennedys. Yeah. 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 But part of, me is, part of me is like, I mean, did folks go after them? Because part of yes. me thinks it's like punk rock is like no, no, they so, it's like so deliberately trans. The Dead Kennedys, in, I mean, in particular for obscenity. I mean, uh, they. Yeah. Were some uh, of them banned from Britain? Were they one of those artists that were, because I know there were some, there's been some artists over time, like Lenny Bruce, I think, couldn't perform in Britain, for example, but I didn't know if they were. in America. They arrested him almost every time. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, just as a teaser, if you want to have a punk rock episode, I mean, one of the ways that I've come to think about punk, which was, you know, is is more than music. It's a, it's a sensibility, a temperament. It's not even an aesthetic in any specific way. It's just, it's kind of an attitude. But it, it can't last, but it, it functioned in the, uh, in the 70s and into the 80s as a kind of cultural antibiotic, I think, that cleaned out a lot of bad infection in the way that culture was going. We definitely need something like that, I think, that, you know, it just a kind of, you know, something that lasts for two or three years in its peak form and just kind of resets the tables. Because I punk, think that's beautifully put. Yeah, what are we doing again? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's yeah. do a version too. Yeah, we might have to do a version. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll circle back with you guys on email, and we can <laughs> we can do a version too. We can focus on punk rock because I know I mean, it's not my genre. I don't love it, you know. Um, yeah. And, it, well, uh, the more you learn about it, not to be, uh, you know, it because all pop music, uh, you know, and rock and pop, uh, hip hop, it all builds. You know, it's it's a synthesis, antithesis you know, thesis again and again. And the more you learn about it, Nika, the more you'll find elements of it in the music you love because it incorporates everything that came before it adds something and then gets incorporated into what comes next. And the, you know, the impulse behind metal in all of its iterations and punk are very similar because it is like, I need something, I need a new language to express who I am and what I'm feeling in this particular moment in time. No, I understand that because, uh, you know, I grew up, Metallica was kind of my first love and it's from Metallica that was the gateway drug to the, all these other, you know, I, like many people had a friend who had an older brother who you like, kind of look up to and had and listened to a certain kind of music. He happened to listen to Swedish death metal. And the first time I heard it, I was like, these guys are just screaming. This is just noise, <laughs> right? This is just noise. But after you yeah. become, a, uh, you know, accustomed to it and you learn about the background, I, I loved it because I was like, they're so intricate on the guitar fretboard. And it, it soon became like, I couldn't listen to Nirvana because it was just so boring on the fretboard. It was so easy to play. And and the screaming and the dynamism and there's a band called Black Dahlia Murder that has this like low guttural scream matched with this high pitch scream. It's like very few people can do that. This The singer for our band could, fortunately. We covered one of their songs. Um, what was the name of that song? But yeah, I, I, I can understand because of my yeah. progression in metal how you can grow accustomed to a kind of music that just on first blush you don't appreciate. And because I don't appreciate, well, it's not that I don't appreciate it. I appreciate what it's done to the culture, but because I don't listen to it, I also am not familiar with the history. So we'll have to do a part two. All right, let's talk do part about two. Piafra and, uh, and the history of punk rock. So, and, and learn about um, all your time there. Bob uh, at, at CBGB's, which apparently didn't pay the rent. Right. And that's why it went out of, 
business. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is a very punk rock thing to do to not pay your rent, right? Well, the rent, the rent got jacked, but uh, like you know, it's like Brigadoon. I mean, you know, these are these are moments. These are floating islands that exist yep. and then disappear. That's as they right. should. So it would, be, it would have become too commercialized. It would have sold out after time, yeah. probably. But, Selling uh, out is not a bad thing. I mean, this is this the you know the the lesson of the Sex Pistols. Yeah, absolutely. That's another conversation. Version two. Yeah, let's do version two. All right. See you soon, guys. Bob and Nick, thanks Nick, for being on the show. Yeah, and Bob, if you could just Thank hang you. out, I'm going to read an outro really quick here. Uh, that was Bob Guccione Jr., the founder of Spin Magazine, and Nick Gillespie, editor-at-large at Reason Magazine. This, of course, is So To Speak Podcast, which is edited by my colleagues Ella Ross and Aaron Reese. If you want to learn more about the podcast, you can follow us on all the social media channels, including YouTube, where we post videos of these conversations. And if you do want to get in touch with me, you have any comments about this podcast or have questions for part two, which it sounds like my uh, generous guests have already agreed to do at some time in the future, you can email us at so to speak at thefire.org. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.